Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And in this episode, we have a new Ubuntu app store that's coming to Ubuntu 23.10. And while it looks good, it also uh, promotes snaps heavily at the detriment of devs. We also have the GNOME 45 Alpha. We have Canonical uh, completely taking the reins of the Linux container daemon project and a lot more distro-related news, some really concerning privacy stuff, uh, the new Threads app from Meta, a lot of stuff to cover. So as always, all the links I use to make this podcast are in the show notes, and all the links to support the show are also in the show notes. So, let's get started. So, our first topic today will be Ubuntu 23.10, and while there are no big news about what it's going to include in terms of features, what we know is that they are going to replace the old Ubuntu Snap Store based on an old version of GNOME software. It was subpar, it didn't look great, it was slow, it was just worse than GNOME software in every possible aspect. So they're replacing it with a new app that's actually been developed by the community. It's a Flutter-based app, since Flutter is the toolkit that uh, Ubuntu and Canonical want to promote for developing their Ubuntu-specific apps. And it was a community project uh, made to showcase that Yes, you can do a better app store than what Ubuntu ships by default, which I think was already clear when you looked at Discover at the Elementary OS App Center, or even just modern GNOME software, what Ubuntu shipped with was just not good. So this new app should make its debut in 23.10, unless something goes wrong. And it looks good, it looks like way shinier and nicer, easier to browse, it's cool. But it's also accompanied by another change, which is that this new app store will put Snap apps first and foremost. The Ubuntu director of engineering actually said that this new app will be Snap first, because it's designed around the metadata that Snap packages have and that their packages might not have. So basically, if an app is available as a deb and as a Snap, graphically you will only be able to install the Snap. You will not see the deb option. Now they also said that presenting debs and snaps on the same app listing page, uh, the two options at the same time, was a non-goal, which I don't really know what they mean by that. Maybe just that it's like super low priority. They say it's confusing and that it restricts design choices and so that deb support will land later in the app. And this statement is, is kind of blurry because the community app they base their work on already supports deb packages. When you're on an app listing, you can already see if it's a deb or a flat pack and you can pick the one you want to install. You can even see Debian packages that have no snap equivalents, apps that aren't in the snap store, but are available in Ubuntu's repos. So the app already supports that. So there was no extra work for them to keep that in, but there was extra work to remove the feature, which is really weird. So I don't know if the statement is voluntarily confusing or if the person didn't quite know exactly what they were trying to say. Uh, basically, we have two options. Either it means that dev support is not there at all in this app, which means there would only be Snap apps available at first, and they will add in dev package support later. Or it means that dev support is there for apps that don't have a Snap version, but for apps that have a Snap and a dev, only the Snap will be visible. It's not super clear just yet, but what is clear is that they voluntarily removed something that the app already supports, because whatever the case is, uh, if it's just hiding the deb if there's a snap, or if it's hiding all debs, 
they had to remove a feature that is already in the community version of the app. Now that new app store also removes the five star rating system and they're using a plus one minus one system that Steam uses. So instead of saying this app is one star or five star, you just say it's uh, I'm putting it on plus one, it's good or minus one, it wasn't good. I think it's a good change. It's what Steam uses generally. And I think it's pretty decent. Uh, it basically lets you aggregate scores and you can't really get review bombed by zero star or one star reviews that will completely eclipse any other review because a normal review will be three or four stars, rarely five. And so if a lot of people just click one star all the time, your rating will be down. If a lot of people click minus one, it still has an impact, but it has less of an impact than putting a zero out of five. So I think it's a good system. Why not? It doesn't truly matter who looks at app ratings uh, on these stores anyways. Uh, generally, when you're looking for an app in there, you know what you want. So you can already try this new app store by using the Edge channel uh, for the store app. Uh, Snap supports channels, beta, etc. So they have an Edge channel that already lets you try it out. But I'm pretty sure that this change will be received as yet another move from Canonical to try and push snaps onto people, which is... It kind of sounds like it is, honestly. If the app already supported dev packages and they voluntarily removed that support, then yes, it's a move to push snaps instead of everything else. But this is an inevitable future, though. I explained that in a previous video this week. Distros will, in the future, move most of their app distribution to Flatpak or to Snap by default. Probably everyone to Flatpak and Ubuntu to Snap. Packaging graphical apps as devs and RPMs is a waste of time for these distributions when there is a universal format that works on all their supported versions. So we can argue on how well it works, how well it doesn't work, which use cases are supported. But generally, for the distro, it's a net positive. For the user, it depends on your stance on these packages. So of course, when I'll take a look at Ubuntu 23.10, I'll make sure to talk specifically about this app and the changes and if there are more information about what exactly they removed in terms of dev support, I'll make sure to update you uh, as soon as we know something more in this podcast or on the channel. So our second topic today is GNOME 45. It has its first alpha and it looks like a relatively small update this time around. So I don't know if that's because there's not many things going on uh, with GNOME 45 in general or if the alpha doesn't include everything they plan to work on. There's a lot of small changes, but no big headline features. Uh, for example, the settings app has been revamped a little bit. You can now close dialogues by pressing the escape key. You've got better accessibility. Panels are just easier to, to, to click and navigate. You have improved support for right to left languages. You've got a better search with more keywords for each panel. So you can find what you're looking for easily. A bunch of small settings and, and changes that have been added, but nothing revolutionary. The file manager got some performance improvements in the search when searching for files or for folders. They also improved the grid and the list view also with performance improvements. Uh, for example, in the list view, you can now change the default columns that are displayed, which is something that is very basic, but generally every single feature that gets added to the GNOME file manager is something that feels very basic where everyone is wondering why it wasn't there in the first place since all the versions of Nautilus did that. Uh, but yeah, at least now it's back. Uh, Gnome Web gets its tab overview feature that I already talked about in a previous podcast. Like you have a little button where when you click it, all your tabs are in some, some sort of expose view. So they're all displayed side by side as little squares and you can navigate to them easily. 
It's a good replacement for the tab list, which was just a drop-down menu. They improved Firefox Sync, which is cool because like GNOME Web syncs with your Firefox account. So you could use GNOME Web on Linux, but use Firefox on another computer that runs Windows and doesn't have access to GNOME Web. And you can still keep your favorites, your password and stuff like that. And saving passwords in GNOME Web should also be more reliable. GNOME Software gets a few interesting changes though. Uh, first, they will display when updates include security fixes. So, you know, if that's just an optional feature update for an app, like it's cool, but I don't necessarily need to do it right now. Or, oh, there's a security fix for this important package or library. I need to apply that right now because, yeah, my system is at risk if I don't. Uh, you will also be able to clear an application's data when uninstalling it. It's something that KD added to Discover, I think, in 5.27. Uh, when you're uninstalling an application, you can also clear all the user directory if you want to delete all the settings. You'll have that same option here in GNOME software. And also, you will have a notification in the store letting you know when a Flatpak app that you have installed reaches end of life. So if the app is marked as completely unmaintained or move to another version right now and stop using this old one, you should do your updates, you'll get a, a little badge in the App Store to tell you you should update this thing or stop using it because it's completely unmaintained. Apparently, there's also going to be the new image viewer, which is called Loop. It's been in development for, I think, the better part of a year or a year and a half. And it's basically a replacement for the basic image viewing GNOME. Uh, it's more modern, but the main improvements are mostly using gestures like a touchscreen or touchpad gestures and generally just using it on a smartphone because that's also a big focus uh, for GNOME these days. You can just pinch to zoom like smoothly. You can swipe to get to another, to another uh, uh, photo if you have opened the various images at the same time. It, it's just a better experience if you use your touchpad or touchscreen to navigate. But for people who don't care about that, I don't think it's going to change much. Uh, the G-Edit, or Get-It, not really sure how people pronounce that, uh, which is the text editor, isn't dead. Uh, it's been replaced in the core GNOME apps by a GNOME Text, which is a pretty decent editor, but not as featureful as G-Edit. So G-Edit is also updated and got a few improvements, especially for legibility, support for other languages. Uh, the Calculator app, GNOME Maps, GNOME Builder, all of that also got some small touches and tweaks here and there. Better, more, not necessarily better, but more options uh, for users. It, on the surface, from what we know right now, it looks like a spit and polish release. Uh, there's a few tweaks, a few improvements, but there's nothing revolutionary that you have to expect here. No big headline features like, like the revamped quick settings menu or the background apps or, or when, uh, when uh, workspaces moved to being horizontal instead of vertical. It's just smaller things here and there. It looks like a, a small refinement release, basically. Now, if you know a little bit about containers, you probably have heard about LXD, which is the Linux container daemon. It was a project developed by Canonical and Ubuntu, but it was also living under the umbrella of the Linux containers community, which made sense since it was a container project. It made sense to have this integrated with all the various images and other container-related projects. Uh, Canonical was one of the main contributors to this project. They founded it, they supported it financially, they contributed a lot of the code. It's a crucial project for them because Ubuntu makes most of its money in the server and enterprise space. They don't make anything, I would say, from the desktop itself. Uh, so yeah, they, they needed to have that arm of containers, or at least they needed to have investment in there because they can develop tools that they actually want to sell to their customers. So if you don't know about it, 
It's an open source container management tool. Uh, it lets you control, configure, and manage all your containers that you can deploy on your servers or on your machines. And so Canonical is now taking back uh, control and general ownership of the project themselves again. Uh, they say it will remain distro independent. They don't plan to make it specific to Ubuntu. Uh, the code will still be open source. They won't limit its distribution to a snap package, although they couldn't help but add that the fact that the, the snap is the best way to run LXD and to get it running on your Linux distro. But they're not going to force you to use snap, at least not right now. And all the code has now migrated onto Canonical's GitHub. The website is now hosted on Ubuntu's website as well. And the community forum on the Linux containers community will be progressively shut down and replaced by Ubuntu's discourse website. So of course, the Linux containers team uh, said that they respect the decision. It is a canonical project. They can decide to just grab it and, and just remove it from the, uh, from the guardianship of the Linux container project. Uh, but yeah, they also say that they regret this decision, probably because it made more sense to have all Linux-related, container-related projects under the same umbrella. But yeah, wh what can you do? It's their project, they, they have the right to do that if they want, as long as it stays open source, as long as they don't force using Ubuntu or Snap, and they don't make any weird decisions. I don't see a big problem with that. Uh, they also said that, Canonical also said that they want to improve this project further, they want to develop a GUI, uh, for the Linux container daemon to make it probably easier and more accessible for users. And they plan to keep investing in it in the future. I don't know how this one is going to go down in the community. It just happens on the back of a lot of corporate distrust after the Red Hat incident. Uh, so people are already wary of companies controlling open source projects. Uh, Ubuntu and Canonical have never been a very, very popular company. Uh, around the more free software-focused uh, communities and people. So this move might not be received all that well because it might be seen as some sort of the beginnings of a takeover from Canonical to try and restrict who can use that project or, or make it better on Ubuntu so people use Ubuntu and not something else. You don't know. It could be another corporation doing the usual corpo shenanigans. We don't know. For now, it doesn't look alarming, but you never know. Okay, and since we're on the Ubuntu topic, uh, they have something that they want to do, uh, apparently for 23.10 as well, which is to get rid of the minimal install option in the Ubuntu installer. Now, this uh, might seem horrific because the minimal option is great if you just want to spin up a very small system with only the basic utilities and none of what some will call bloatware, but are just pre-installed apps. Uh, this, this might seem scary, it's not. Uh, they are just going to replace the minimal option install and the regular install option as well by a normal install by default, which is minimal. And you then have the ability to choose the apps that you want to add to your install. So basically, every install will have a minimal core of the various utilities that you need, uh, only the stuff that you need, well, that Ubuntu thinks that you need. And then on top of that, you'll have a choice for the various apps that you want to install. So for now, we don't really know. Do they want to offer, like, you can uncheck LibreOffice, you can uncheck Totem Video Player, you can uncheck, I don't know, VLC or whatever. Uh, or will they let you pick a specific app for each category? Like, which Office suite do you want? There's LibreOffice, there's OnlyOffice, there's, I don't know, GNU, whatever. Uh, or do you want to install VLC or Totem or MPV Player or whatever? I don't know, uh, we're not really sure right now, or at least I couldn't find the information. 
I think they just want to offer people a choice to say, okay, my installs, I never use GIMP or LibreOffice, I don't need that, so I'm going to uncheck them, and so I'm just going to have a minimal install that conforms to my needs. It's minimal because it's exactly what I need and nothing more. And the regular people that just want the whole Ubuntu experience can just have everything, they keep everything checked and they press next and they're good to go. I don't know if that's what they're aiming for or if they have to want basically a ballot screen for multiple apps for each option. Not quite sure. What's more annoying though is that it looks like the ISO would not include all these applications and that you would have to download them at install. And on the surface it might look like it's the same thing, like you're downloading a smaller ISO but then you have to download the applications, presumably as snap packages. Uh, but in the end, if you have a complete ISO, you can download it once, burn it to a USB and use that to install on multiple computers without re-downloading anything else. Or you could just lend that USB to someone else who doesn't have to re-download the ISO. If you have a fiber unlimited connection, you don't care. But if you live somewhere where like 4G is your main way of downloading stuff and you have a metered connection, then it's annoying to have to use more data to download apps on multiple computers uh, when you could have just downloaded a full-on ISO. So we'll have to see if they still offer complete ISOs and smaller ISOs that let you download the app at install or not. We'll have to see. I think it's still a pretty good thing. Uh, it looks like it's just a proposal for now. Like the fact that they want to get rid of the minimal install and offer selections of apps seems pretty much acted now. Uh, it seems decided upon. But they're asking the community for some feedback, if only to decide which apps would come as part of the minimal install, like which are part of the core install, you don't get a choice, they're in there. So for example, the terminal and the file manager, like the basic stuff that you really need. But do you need to have GNOME Calculator as a default or do you let users pick that? Do you need to have a web browser or do you let users pick that? Stuff like that. So they're asking people what they think about this and they are also seeing a little bit further away uh, this is probably not going to land in 23.10, but in the future, they want to offer app bundles. So for example, you say, hey, I'm here for content creation. So they are going to give you an app bundle with Kden Live, with, I don't know, Inkscape, GIMP, and stuff like that. Uh, could be cool. Or also the possibility for users to bring their own app list. So maybe you could just have a small text file with the, a few names of apps, and you say, okay, I want all everything that's in this file, and it automatically downloads and installs that. That would be pretty cool, especially if they can sync that with some form of account. I think they already have like a Ubuntu single sign-on something. If they could link that, uh, that could be cool because that would mean you could restore all your installed apps with just a, they, they wouldn't have to store a lot of stuff, just a simple list of text, uh, a simple text file with a list of apps. It wouldn't be too hard. So this is me extrapolating. They said they want to have users bring their own app list, but I don't know if they're going to implement some kind of syncing solution or not. I think it's a good approach. I think it's great that users get to decide at install to choose what they want to have uh, on their system and not waste time uninstalling that afterwards. I think it's cool. It, it's a good decision. And if it leaves a minimal install that is minimal enough for people, if their minimal install doesn't include, I know, GIMP, because a lot of people don't care about GIMP, then I'm all for it. Now, still on the topic of distributions, we now have BlendOS 3 available for download. And you might wonder why should you care, because it's basically a small community distro that you might never have heard about, but it brings a few interesting things. Uh, it's an immutable distribution, it's Arch-based, and it does pretty much the same thing as vanilla OS, which I already reviewed on my YouTube channel, which is immutable-based, 
but access to every single packaging format you might want through containers. Uh, in BlendOS 3's case, it's running with Podman. And so basically you just install any package you want, it automatically creates a container with the right distro, the app is automatically added to your app menu, and when you launch it, it's completely transparent, you don't know it's running from a container, it's graphically accelerated, and you can't really notice any performance difference. So it's basically an Arch-based system which is immutable, so you don't break anything, and you have access to the AUR, Flatpaks, Snaps, uh, RPMs, Debs, NixOS, packages, whatever you want. There's everything. And so they're also doing a few interesting things uh, with updates. They're gonna update using ISOs, uh, but bear with me because they are not just going to re-download an ISO every time. Basically, when there's a new ISO that's released, they're gonna compare the version of the ISO with your system. If the ISO is newer, they're going to download what you need from it. They're gonna rebuild a new root file system. And then when you next reboot your system, you'll boot on this new root file system and the old one will be kept so you can have a fallback in case something breaks. And they don't download the whole ISO image, they only download parts of what's needed and it's heavily compressed, so updates seem to be, from what they say, at around 10 to 100 megabytes, which is pretty decent. Uh, this distro supports a lot of desktop environments, Gnome, Plasma, Cinnamon, XFC, Mate and LXQt, and they added a single command which lets you change the whole desktop environment you want, you don't have to hunt for packages, choose what you want, you just run one command with the name of the desktop and it installs everything you need, which is really cool. And apparently this command also lets you set that new desktop as the default, uh, set the, the theme, etc. as the default for this desktop. So you can't really have mixed and matched uh, cursor themes, icon themes and stuff like that, which can happen, for example, in Fedora, you install GNOME, then you install KDE. Uh, your KD is going to look weird uh, or your GNOME when you reboot in GNOME will look weird because it's going to have some, some settings changed by KDE itself. Now, BlendOS 3 also borrows from NixOS. Uh, they're bringing a simple YAML file to reproduce your dot .files, your containers, your app associations. So it's a declarative uh, YAML file where you can say, okay, uh, when you build my system, you need to include this, that, that, and that, and that, and automatically when the system is rebuilt or updated, it will go look for all of this and make sure that everything is always the same. And if you need to reinstall, you can just grab your file and use that to rebuild the exact same system. So that's pretty cool. And they also have a graphical package installer. It's not a package manager, it's a package installer. And basically it's just a simple drag and drop operation. You grab your deb or your RPM or whatever, you slide it on here, and it will automatically install this package into the right container or create and start a new container if you don't have one that can run these packages and everything stays completely transparent. So as I said, it's based on Arch, but don't expect the Arch experience here. It is immutable, it is image-based, it's much more like SteamOS than like regular Arch. And it's a super interesting concept. I already explored it with vanilla OS. Uh, I left a link to it in the show notes. But BlendOS does look a little bit more user-friendly in terms of making all that container stuff transparent for users. Uh, so I will definitely give it a look uh, pretty soon, now that version 3 is out, uh, to see how it compares uh, to vanilla OS specifically. Now we have more news on the Red Hat saga. I truly, truly hope this is the end of it. It's not a major thing, it's just Rocky Linux and Alma Linux answering uh, to Red Hat, basically. Uh, they published statements explaining how they will keep access to the latest source code uh, despite the Red Hat restrictions. Uh, 
So Rocky Linux, for example, said that they will use the public UBI containers that are freely available from Docker Hub without entering into a license agreement with Red Hat, without becoming a paid customer or whatever, so they can escape the terms and conditions that Red Hat tries to, to add on top of the GPL, so you can't really use the exact code of Red Hat uh, at the exact versions that they pinned. So they basically will spin up a Red Hat instance for free and grab the source RPMs from there. Uh, they say this allows them to get access to the source code without agreeing to the terms and conditions, which is basically the main issue here. So what Red Hat did serves no purpose because a solution was figured out and will probably not be a lot more time intensive than it was before. Uh, Alma Linux is also evaluating a bunch of ways uh, to do the same thing, but their own blog post focused more on the actual value that these Red Hat rebuilds provide because that was a thing that Red Hat attacked, basically saying, these rebuilds contribute nothing, they serve no purpose, they're useless. And, well, I didn't quite know what to answer to that personally, because I don't personally have a use case for them, and I didn't really know what people use them for. Uh, but yeah, the Alma Linux blog is kind of compelling. Uh, they mention the fact that they're personally, well, personally, no, they're as an entity, or non-profits that are not involved in any corporate motives. Uh, they also say that they work with the community to enable a bunch of stuff, uh, like use of the CentOS special interest groups, which seem to be like package archives you can add uh, to, to, to CentOS, you could add to CentOS. And when they created Alma Linux, they worked to maintain these things to avoid a bigger fragmentation of the CentOS community, because the move like to, to support these CentOS special interest groups was picked up by the other rebuilds as well. And they also point out that they did expand support uh, to a new architecture, the Raspberry Pi, and that they helped to support ARM64 as well. They also say that they contribute money to various conferences like Fedora Flock or the OpenSUSE Conf. And then they stretched it out a little bit by saying, yeah, members of the Alma Linux community contribute to RPM, to AWX, to VirtualBox, stuff like that. Uh, one of their contributors uh, maintains 600 packages for the EPEL repos, which are basically the PPAs for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. But this is not work that Alma Linux as an entity does. It's work that some community members do. So it's you can't really attribute that specifically to Alma Linux. But yeah, the interesting thing here is that basically the restrictions Red Hat tried to put on the source code will not have any impact on the rebuilds which makes this whole thing completely pointless. Uh, apart from irreparably damaging their image in the eyes of a big part of the community, this will not achieve anything. The rebuilds will still be there and they will still exist and they will still serve hobbyists that don't want to have a subscription or enter into an agreement with Red Hat specifically. They will still have their role and their place. So unless Red Hat wants to impose more restrictions on their container images, they can't really do anything to stop that. So yeah, they just shot themselves in the foot for no well-explained reason. This will not help them at all in the long run, which, yeah, that's how it goes. So now we're going to talk about privacy and specifically privacy in France. Uh, you might think that France is actually a country very focused on respecting privacy, on refusing surveillance, especially since it's part of the EU, which has very strict privacy laws. But it seems like you and I as well, as a French person, uh, we're both wrong. We're all wrong. Because there's a new bill that was just voted in France to allow the police to remotely activate cameras and microphones on French citizens' devices just if they're suspected of a crime. 
that would be punishable by a minimum of five years of jail time. So basically, if they suspect you of having committed a serious crime, they can request to activate all cameras and microphones remotely on your phones, laptops, speakers, your cars, whatever, and more. And just because you're suspected, you haven't been found guilty of anything, you're just a suspect. They can monitor your location, they can look through your cameras, they can listen to what you're saying on your microphone. It's insane. And yes, the French justice minister said it would only affect about 12 cases per year, trying to minimize the impact. But the fact is, it's still a huge potential backdoor for an authoritarian regime to abuse in the future. Because if they decide that, hey, you know what, uh, now uh, being gay is a crime punishable by five years of jail time, so now we can monitor the cameras of everyone we suspect of being gay just to make sure. That could happen. Like, it, like look at the US with, with abortions. Like, abortion is now illegal in a lot of states. If France also decided that abortion is a crime, for example, they could say, you know what, it's now punishable by five years of jail time. So now everybody that's just talking about abortion or literally every girl from 16 to 28, we're going to look into their phones because they could commit that kind of crime. So we're going to listen to everything they say. Like the potential for abuse here is huge. And yes, a judge still needs to sign on the surveillance. So the police can just turn it on willy-nilly. They have to have the approval of a judge. So one would expect they have to bring sufficient proof to justify their suspicions. But I don't think it's going to be too hard to find a judge somewhere that ratifies the thing. Like, a lot of judges are as conservative as others and will just decide, hey, you know what? Yes, this is suspicious. Boom, let's go. This surveillance will be limited to six months, which is still huge and time enough to find anything incriminating, even not related to the case at all, is just a huge invasion of privacy that is absolutely horrible. And you can compound that with the fact that we've had big riots following the death of a kid in France at the hands of the police. Uh, the kid was basically trying to escape uh, in a vehicle after a control, a, a police control. Probably the kid was drunk. He got shot. They killed him. Uh, for, for just running away from a breathalyzer. Like, like, the response is not proportionate. So, of course, people went nuts and went way too far. They burned houses. Uh, they burned, like, uh, various little stores that hadn't done anything. Uh, they actually rammed a flaming car into a, a, a mayor's residence somewhere. Like, yeah, it went way too far. Uh, but also the police is looking into hiding uh, the real circumstances of the event. It's been pretty much uh, proven and leaked that the police was trying to write a fake uh, review of the incident, uh, saying that actually the kid was trying to, to run them with their car, to run, to, to drive on them with the car. But videos of the incident show that this is clearly false. So we already have, like, fake reports produced by the police to try and justify their, their crimes. We're just in a very weird situation in France. Like, our president just threatened to shut down social media platforms during protests. This is in France. This is not, like... Uh, Turkey or, or a super or, or Russia. It's not an authoritarian regime technically, but it looks like it is. Uh, so yeah, this is very weird. Like our laws are getting more and more invasive and more and more focused on surveillance. Uh, we now have the same kind of police brutality as in the US. We now have the same kinds of denial of democracy that we could see in Russia, for example, where laws are passed without any vote from any of the people's representatives. 
what the hell is happening? I I'm seriously starting to look at where I could move because, yeah, this country is just not representing my values at all. And still on the topic of privacy, we have another thing you should avoid, which is Threads, uh, the Twitter competitor from Meta and Instagram. Uh, this thing just launched and surprisingly already reached 30 million signups in the first 24 hours. Uh, so yeah, people just could not wait to give out their data to yet another privacy invasive app. And this app is so privacy invasive that it's not even available in the EU because Meta knows that what they collect would not even be allowed here. Uh, well, I mean, I can't really tout the EU too much since, yeah, you see what's happening in France. But yeah, like we have relatively solid privacy laws, at least for companies, not necessarily for governments, but for companies. And uh, yeah, looking at the permissions, the Threads apps collect, no, do not install that. Like basically to display text updates from various YouTubers you like, you will have to give your entire digital life to Meta, including purchases, your location, whatever else. It's insane. Do not install this thing. It's spyware in disguise. And it does nothing more than what Twitter or Mastodon actually do. So of course, Meta promised that this Threads app would support the ActivityPub standard in the future, which would make their app compatible with Mastodon, for example. People on the Fediverse do not seem to want that at all and would probably start defederating with everybody as fast as possible to avoid interacting with people using threads, which means that basically Meta might force us to shoot ourselves in the foot, uh, leaving them as the biggest ActivityPub service in the world so they could effectively do anything they want to that protocol because, well, any other app is just too small compared to them, so they basically just own the protocol by default. They could do whatever they want if we leave them uh, a clear field. So awesome. Uh, this is great. Like, it's, it's uh, <laughs> choosing between pest and cholera. Uh, like, there's either we stay and we're just interacting with a giant corp, which will do really crazy and stupid stuff, and probably their crazed following, which we all tried to escape uh, from Twitter, or you just decide to not interact with them, but you're basically just giving them away the whole activity pub protocol for them to do as they please to lock it down or whatever. So yeah, uh, fantastic. And on top of that, to add to the shit show, it looks like Elon Musk, uh, the owner of Twitter, is now pretty shaken by this. They threatened, uh, Twitter has threatened to sue Meta uh, for this new Threads app, alleging that it infringes on their intellectual property that they hired ex-Twitter employees. Uh, it's, it's also the, the complete usual Elon Musk tantrum and bullshit. Like, whatever. It's Who cares about this, basically? Why didn't I even include that in the podcast? So, yeah, basically, Elon is saying, I fired so many people that there's no way Meta hasn't hired a single one to work on threads. And they probably know some trade secrets for some reason, but we didn't really lock that in into a non-compete agreement. Uh, we just let people leave and we didn't care about that because we wanted to get rid of them super fast. But now we're realizing maybe it was a mistake. So yeah. So another social media for the entire world. Uh, whatever Mastodon does, we're pretty much screwed because Meta will control the activity pub protocol just by their single size. Uh, it's a shit show for Twitter because, well, they have a huge competitor that seems to attract a lot of people, at least uh, for a start. And it's a huge mess for privacy in general. Because apparently 30 million people still haven't learned that using Facebook products 
is completely stupid. Oh, and also if you want to delete your Threads account, you will have to also delete your Instagram account so no one will ever delete their Threads account. So yeah, we live in a absolute shit show of a world in terms of privacy and technology. It's great. And now we're gonna move on to more fun stuff, the gaming news. So first, we have a new beta for Steam. Uh, this new beta improves compatibility for Linux, specifically for window managers, like Openbox. Apparently on some window managers, uh, you could not really click the menus in Steam. They didn't register, probably because the window wasn't properly focused or something. Uh, so now it should be the case. And it's quite interesting, because it means that Valve doesn't just care about the Steam Deck or Steam OS or the major Steam distros. They care about Linux in general, apparently, because... Who cares about window managers, right? But they must be thinking, hey, you know what? Even though, like, yeah, it's the advanced users, it's probably not the majority of Linux users that have a window manager set up or even open box set up. But uh, yeah, we're still going to cater to that because why the hell not? We, we don't have anything better to work on, basically. It's interesting. Like, it shows a real respect uh, for Linux as a whole, which is really cool. And there's also a small fix in this new beta which should prevent crashes on NVIDIA GPUs at the cost of some window flickering and artifacts, which should not be there on Intel and AMD GPUs anymore. Now, it also looks like the Steam Deck is slowly gaining control of the entire Linux gaming scene. 40% uh, of Steam users, judging from the Steam survey, 40% uh, of these Steam users are now using SteamOS. And the second most run distro is Arch at 8.3%, so far, far below. And Ubuntu after that, 7.8%, and then it's just little pebbles here and there. Of course, Windows is still 97% of the Steam market share, but Linux is now gaining on macOS quite fast with 1.44% versus 1.79% for Apple's OS. And one would expect it's just on the back of the Steam Deck which means that really no one games on a Mac at all. And overwhelmingly, it seems like Linux gamers prefer AMD hardware, like AMD CPUs represent 67% of the installed base for Steam on Linux, which is a big contrast to the situation on Windows, where Steam users favor Intel at 67%. So it's basically the opposite. Uh, on Linux, people have AMD CPUs, and on Windows, people basically mostly use Intel CPUs. And I think, of course, there's the Steam Deck to thank for that. Uh, it has an AMD APU. The Steam Deck is 40% of Linux gamers, so it's, well, of Steam gamers, so it's enough to skew the results a lot in AMD's favor. But it's still interesting. Why would Windows users favor Intel over AMD when it's been made pretty clear for a while now that that Ryzen CPUs are generally a better value for money. Like, it would be interesting to see NVIDIA versus AMD in terms of GPU and the distribution on Linux compared to on Windows. Uh, would, would people on Windows also favor NVIDIA a lot and on Linux AMD a lot? This one I would understand, because drivers on Linux for AMD are generally more polished and better if you don't buy the very latest graphics card, which will take like six months to be correctly supported. But generally, AMD is better on Linux for GPU. W would this thing be completely inverted as well? It's interesting. Like we're, we're basically always trying to be the opposite of everyone else. But yeah, this will conclude uh, this Patreon cast. Sorry for being kind of ranty uh, on the French stuff, but this absolutely affects me personally. I live in this country. 
and every single breach of privacy or of democracy or every step that a country takes towards a more totalitarian regime is really deeply felt because, well, that's where I live. So it, it hurts. It hurts more than when it's in the US where I don't live. And believe me, it still annoys me when it's the same kind of stuff in the US. So you can imagine why I was so pissed for this kind of news. So thank you all for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, all the links, if you want more details about any of these uh, specific articles or little snippets, they're all in the show notes. If you want to support the show, all the links are in the show notes as well. So thank you all for listening. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.